Today, I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Lieberman. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami, where her research takes an evolutionary approach to looking at social relationships and emotion. Dr. Lieberman, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So like I mentioned but before we started recording, I'm very excited to talk about this episode, uh, to talk about your work because I often ask my guests about possible evolutionary explanations for, for, um, for human behavior. And most of the time it's just speculation, but given that this, this is um, your area of expertise, it'll be very interesting to talk about what we know um, from evolutionary psychology. Yes, I can give you expert speculation. <laughs> yeah, expert speculation. So it's it's a rather new field, evolutionary psychology, right? Um, ironically, yes. Uh, so it's, you know, one should, given uh, the long history of evolution, it is indeed very recent that we've started to put the principles of natural selection and cognitive science and uh, anthropology and just uh primatology, a lot of different fields together. And there's been a lot of different fields that have come together to create the field of evolutionary psychology. And so I think one of the reasons it is so new is because it requires training or at least um, either training in one of the fields like evolutionary biology or cognitive science, thinking about function uh, versus being trained in a more traditional in a more traditional discipline that might not have had an eye toward function. So no, it's, mm -hmm. I think most of the founding people of this field tended to be more evolutionary biologists. Um, huh. And which side of the coin did you come from? Were you more on the evolutionary biology side turned psychologist or psychologists who started looking at, at evolution? You know, I was a biochemistry major, so I had never taken a psychology course uh, until I got to grad school <laughs> in psychology. And I was told here, you're gonna start TAing this class. And I was like, I should probably get a textbook to read what psychology <laughs> is. Um, so no, I definitely came more from the evolutionary biology standpoint, but I went to, uh, I went to Binghamton. And so for me, it was a little strange because I was, I was introduced to this field by David Sloan Wilson, who taught a course, an undergraduate and uh, graduate course on this topic. And so I naturally thought all, I've, I've, all biologists thought about humans. Um, and, then I, and then I realized that's just not correct. And then I thought all psychologists must, have, must think about evolution and that's not correct. And so it kind of left me a little bit befuddled. Um, and so it ends up that evolutionary biologists tend to apply uh, they, they tend to apply the principles of, of, of natural selection to understand design features of organisms. Um, mm -hmm. They don't tend to appreciate the cognitive science components in terms of what's required to perform a lot of the cognitive functions that humans perform, and, and typically they're, they're critters of interest. Uh, but then you have psychologists who typically are completely innocent of evolutionary biology and, and notions of evolved function to think about why the circuit board that they're studying even came into existence. And so it's really a, a strange chasm that that evolutionary psychology falls into where it should be the peak of the, you know, of, of education. It tends to be kind of the, you know, the dark arts that's combining cognitive science and evolutionary biology, but no one really knows what to do with it. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit strange. 
And how does how does the research usually work? Is it like you come up with an evolutionary sound hypothesis and then you just test to see whether we actually observe that in human behavior? There are so many different ways in. Um, it, yes, that's one way. So you can think about you can think about ancestral selection pressures. And so mm -hmm. thinking about what the environments of the past might have been like and the kinds of things that would have affected survival and reproduction. Uh, you know, for, for our ancestors and maybe even, you know, phylogenetically even more ancient. And you can posit the types of solutions or systems that might have evolved that would have enabled the individuals to survive and reproduce and overcome those particular pressures. And so that's one way, and that's typically the way that most evolutionary psychology is done, but it need not be that way. I mean, you could certainly take a, take a look at a particular modern behavior and say, hey, what's that? Um, and so then you can start thinking about it. And I mean, this is where that this is where people can, you know, it's the claim is now that you're just making up a story. Well, any explanation is a just so story. It's a matter of what explains the data, but not only that converging lines of evidence, right? So the idea that if you do look at human behavior and human nature, you can start asking some very basic questions about, is this type of behavior something that would have served our hunter-gatherer ancestors, for example, how might it have done so? What, what kind of program are we talking about? Is this, you know, how would it have developed and so forth? And so identifying the kinds of pressures and, and environmental, internal, I mean, any type of pressure, social, biological, physical, ecological, uh, that might've existed persistently over our evolutionary time, that would have, I mean, to the extent you can identify that, that would give you a little bit more confidence that you are identifying a behavior or a feature of our human nature that evolved uh, to perform a particular function. Mm -hmm. So, and then you can also look at neuroscience. Um, and so you can see, hey, look, you know, you bop people on the head, they seem to lose this function, they can't recognize uh, human faces, for instance, oh my gosh, look at that, there seems to be a dedicated circuitry for identifying faces, and not only that particular uh, emotions and so forth. Um, obviously, there are people like Lisa Feldman Barrett who don't think there's anything called an emotion anymore. It's not clear that, to her, perhaps, that there there are emotions, but I think that it's pretty clear to to many people taking uh, evolution seriously that there are programs that are coordinated that respond to particular recurring situations that required a coordinated response of the psychology and physiology, um, and so. I think uh, there's many ways that you can start. And then you can look at development, you can look at clinical psychology. And so I think there's a lot of ways in to start identifying what are the functional components of our, you know, evolved human nature, you know, 2.0 or 1.0, right? So what, mm. what, is our, what are our mental apps? Yeah, it definitely seems like it can be applied to any area of, of psychology. Now, I've also heard arguments for something like trying to create an evolutionary story for anything there it was an architecture term i don't remember what it was but the idea was sometimes there's like something that emerges as just not for a specific purpose but like you're just looking at the gap between the the two pillars it, it, like it, it was spandrels yes yeah spandrels <laughs> so so the spandrels are like it's like the gap between two pillars in a building something like that right it could be or it could be a design feature being that that is actually a you know looking at the the nice, uh, the way that arches come together produces a very nice you know, 
a nice design. And so that's that's mm -hmm. part of the holistic design. So uh, so it might not necessarily be uh, a byproduct as, as many people think, but regardless of that, mm -hmm. it ends up that it, at any moment in time, given a particular species, you have a, a you know you have a particular group of reproducing individuals, and mm -hmm. the question is, given the reliably developing structures that interact with the environment in all aspects of the environment, whether it be social, biological, physical, you name it, uh, to produce an, a phenotype, kind of the manifest behavior, and then you can have other things evolve on top of that. So the idea that you have the ability to, I mean, so it's really just a matter of looking at functional design. And I, I would say that one of the arts in the science is being able to determine whether or not you're talking about something that's an adaptation and whether it evolved specifically to perform a particular function. And there's ways of going about doing that and triangulating or something that kind of comes along for free. And so a typical example that people can give you is, so the placenta is a, is a great adaptation, a physiological adaptation. As a byproduct, everyone gets a belly button, right? And so it comes along for free. You know, the belly button per se isn't functional. Um, but that's not to say that given the baseline that everyone has a belly button, that that couldn't be a baseline upon which or, or a start, starting material and starting point upon which other adaptations that are functional might be built. And so I don't know what the heck those would be, <laughs> but nevertheless, the idea is, you know, it's, you know, I think that the critics of the science just don't know enough about the science uh, to really understand. It's so easy to take a pot shot at the science um, and it's, but, I, and, and so many people do, and it's so easy to dismiss just to say, go back and please understand what you're talking about before you're going to start, you know, throwing stones here. So I think that there really is a genuine approach and a rigorous approach to understanding and carving nature at its joints and, and determining what's an adaptation and, and what's, what's a byproduct. Mm -hmm. It seems like one of the other reasons it's it's a bit controversial is because it fits into this whole nature nurture debate. So anything that's that's like an evolutionary grounded um, explanation that that fits a lot more on the nature side, and I guess it it leaves less room for um, for for explaining human behavior in terms of our social environments. Even I though I couldn't both. disagree with you more, I couldn't disagree with you more, uh, and I think that the dichotomy. That's typically, you know, so unfortunately, a lot of the behavioral and social sciences are riddled with these dichotomies, right? So you have biology versus culture, nature versus learning, mm -hmm. uh, person, dis you know, it, it even infiltrates various types of uh, sub-disciplines in psychology, you know, person versus situation. And so I would say at base, if there is no nature, there can be no nurture. Right. So if you do not have some type of programming and you know we can debate the extent of that programming and that's where the fun is but if you do not have some type of programming the system in question will not learn anything patterned anything at all i i, I at least it will not learn anything patterned efficiently in a way that would have been would have been critical, you know, when you talk about species that are being chased by predators and hunted by disease and pathogens and so forth. And so 
the idea that you, the ability to perform any function. Well, first off, most people equate nature with genes, right? So it's genetic. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but I, I, I it's, I, it, I don't know whether this is ever going to go away. So I just should get used to keep to saying it, but genes are just genes in a cell hanging out in, they, they do nothing, right? So they require a cell, which requires other cells, which requires a body, which requires an eternal biochemistry, which requires a whole, you know, like it requires all these different levels of organization. And so to think that evolutionary psychologists believe anything's genetic is is basically just kind of making very clear they don't understand what the field and enterprise is all about. Genes build structures. To the extent that genes build structures in ways that were reliable, that interacted with the environment, and by interacted, I mean, I mean, moved about, consumed different kinds of things, motivated individuals to do any, you know, bazillion types of behaviors. To the extent those genes had some effect on the phenotype and it increased the frequency of those genes in the next generation, those are the genes that got to play in the next generation and populate the next generation. And they increased in frequency and they, you know, and then wash, rinse, repeat. And Mm -hmm. so it is a very basic process, but to say that it's genetic versus environmental gets at the idea of, I think the kind of circuitry. I mean, so let's just say I take people seriously for a second who are saying, ah, it's genetic. And so obviously there's circuitry that's guiding behavior. Our behavior isn't random. And so the idea that people want to say that environmental input, you know, in this kind of, social learning is the most important thing. It, it, it seems to inject some type of randomness, randomness that they want to have in human nature. If it's not randomness, they want ultimate flexibility. And it's just, it's very, it's unclear what that might mean. Mm-hmm. There's choice and there's reasons why we view people as having had choices in the decisions and the behavior decisions they made and the behaviors that they that they performed. Um, but in terms of actually performing any type of behavior, talk to any engineer building any gizmo. You're not going to get any type of patterned non-random behavior unless you're specifying how the organism is interacting and the kinds of information that we're taking in. And so. I mean, I could, I could keep going, but there is really an important aspect here that people who say the environment is much more important don't appreciate how complex learning has to be. They take for granted the complexity of the systems we have that make learning seem so effortless. I know what's edible, right? And the thing is, is that I exclude the majority of the substances and matters and objects around me as edible. And it's like, duh, I know what's edible, but that learning, you know, seeing someone eat something and not keel over and die and foam at the mouth. I mean, that's a, that's a very dedicated learning system, right? Or smelling something and knowing about experience and having, I mean, there are, learning has to be guided. Otherwise it's random and meaningless. And so I, I think that, at base, people who like to make these dichotomies don't quite understand what's involved in getting a complex system to interact with the world in a pattern non-random way. Mm-hmm. 
another thing we could talk about is is I guess the is it the naturalistic fallacy? So it's the idea that maybe our evolution has has guided us in a certain direction, but it doesn't mean we have to we have to stay that way. So so for example, um, this might relate to some of uh, of your work on social relationships and on disgust. We have these like in group out group biases. And I've heard some evolutionary explanations for maybe that has to do with we were living in tribal groups a long time ago, and it made sense to to want to have strong ties to your tribe and to be uh, suspicious of outsiders. But nowadays we have this global society, and it's it's probably better off to to not to get rid of those types of prejudices. Um. I think it would be great if, if we could all get along. Uh, I mean, like there's there's what I would would want, uh, and then there's there's what is. So yes, I think yeah. that you know being, I think that you should be talking to a philosopher. So no, you don't want to actually make that jump. However, I do believe that there is is a jump between is and ought in the sense that we can understand we can have an is a good evolutionary understanding for why we believe we ought to behave in particular mm -hmm. ways. So, yeah. uh, so, so there's, there, there's one way you can bridge those two and maybe people would argue with this, but the idea that I think you ought to be nice to me, there is a good reason why I have that uh -huh. sentiment. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I can understand why I have my oughts using an evolutionary perspective. Um, but the more general uh, way that philosophers typically look at it is in terms of, you know, the architect of a, of a, of a new society and what, the, what better norms and, and rules and philosophies might be, um, you know, typically you don't connect, you know, the is and the ought for sure. But, but as a science, I think it's interesting to explore why it is we feel we ought to do and, and not do certain things. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the problems with the people who are more on like the social learning side of things might be that when you have certain ises, um, that, that sort of restricts your, your ability to, if you have an idea of an ought and evolution says that's not going to work, then I guess <laughs> that's kind of a problem for you. So, so if you choose not to believe it, then. Well, well like for what? I mean, how do you mean evolution says it's not going to work? What do you mean? Well, I, I think again, prejudice is a good example. So if, if I guess. Well, we can talk about some of your work um, if, if you've done any, any work related to this, but it seems like I've heard some arguments that we have part of our disgust sensitivity applies to, um, like, we, we associate, we have outgroup biases maybe because of, of pathogen avoidance or something like that. And then you, that means that we're prone to being being prejudiced, I guess. And obviously in an ideal world that wouldn't happen, but then we have this, we have this is that seems stuck with us to, to some degree. So I'm not really part of that camp that, that makes that jump uh, about pathogens and, and outgroups so much mm -hmm. um, in the sense that our discussed psychology, at least the way I have talked about it recently, it seems that disgust evolved to do three things, mm -hmm. personal things guide our consumption, guide so what we eat, what and who we touch, and who we mate with. And so those three things guide my personal behaviors. It ends up that by virtue of my, you know, 
my assessment of 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 the disgustingness of other people like what they're touching you know what they're eating who they're having sex with for instance uh yeah those ideas i think some of that factors into how we value other people and so it's not really the disgust system per se but it's the social value system instead and so the idea and i think the social value system is going to take in features of our discussed psychology that puts certain people low on the totem pole and then they are now ripe for exploitation so other systems take advantage of that to say you know who can we target and get rid of uh, and exploit and i think that 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 that's one one thing that happens and i think that once you start exploiting other people even if it wasn't discussed motivated discussed psychology is kind of brought in as a way of communicating those motivations and so i think that disgust has a very interesting and complex relationship with morality but i don't think it's necessarily a very easy one-to-one -one of outsider more pathogens therefore i hate you and i'm going to be prejudiced mm -hmm. i think that there are coalition other coalitional uh cues that people use that are independent of pathogens that just being part of a different coalition is is really all you need in order to start lowering social value um independent mm -hmm. of pathogens i mean men often you know so i'm read uh recently read uh some of nap shagnon uh who's no longer with us some of his work on the yanomamo and men go on raids you know to out, out out groups you know to take wives and so the idea is if they thought they had pathogens you know and they take them expressly for the purpose of having sex with them and so the idea is if they're going to be thinking that their out groups have pathogens that doesn't make very much sense mm -hmm. um I so I think there's other reasons why you're suspicious about groups other than pathogens, but that's my personal my personal take on it. And I think that other discussed researchers have come to different conclusions. And so you'd have to have to talk have to talk to them a little bit about mm. that. But but why don't you um, so get us back to the is ought question now that you were you were onto though. Hmm. Well, I, ha I had another question in mind. Maybe okay. this will come back around to the to the is ought question. But we okay. also talked about uh, social value, and I guess there's. I'm wondering how much of that has to do with sexual selection, because I, I feel like some of the more extreme evolutionary biology minded people might say that everything boils down to sex. So, for, for example, even if you want to to get good grades and um, be be have like a, a good job and, and like, you know, whatever, whatever it if you if you're making an evolutionary argument, everything you're doing is so you can pass on your genes to the next generation. Well, there's a difference between why you're doing what you're doing in the current proximate sense and the reasons why those things evolved. And mm -hmm. so, so those extreme evolutionary biologists need to go back and read uh, some of the basic foundational papers. So the idea that, yes, I mean, the idea that I, I, I care about my child and I am very concerned about my child. And it's, it's because of the genes that I want to have reproduced, but why am I caring for my child? I love my child, right? And so I care for my child. And so it ends up that the reasons why I care for my child and I have those motivations is that those motivations just happen to have the consequence of having this positive feedback on the increase in frequency of the genes that, you know, promoted those motivations. Whereas ancestors that had motivations to, you know, 
birth a child and walk away, you know, with indifference um, or with fear or with anger or something like this, um, those motivations didn't get to, weren't passed on and didn't increase in frequency, those decreased in frequency. But the, in the mind of the individual, there needs to be no recognition of any of this. I mean, the idea that, you know, we would hold a conscious. So in terms of why do I brush my teeth in the morning? Why do I, you know, give myself solid nutrition or why do I do anything? It's not, I mean, listen, there, there's a very big difference between, you know, uh, you know, thinking I want to have sex right now. I want to have sex right now. And I want to have sex right now. And I'm wondering whether the gender of these people who are saying this are men, because um, it aren't men like thinking about sex every nine seconds or something. So the idea, that, not. <laughs> so, but the idea that, you know, you can have the idea of mo current motivations of, you know, must seek partner, very different than the idea of, you know, everything I'm doing is, you know, for the purpose of passing on my genes, those aren't our proper motivations. You can have explicit, you can explicitly know that after you've been trained, but you know, you go to any type of hunter-gatherer, hunter-horticultural, you know, group, and they're they're just doing what they do. And the things that they end up doing tend to be the things that on average over evolutionary time led to an increase in frequency of those behaviors that led them to do what they did. Um, so you don't need to have any conscious awareness of why we have the motivations, but they all tended to have the effect of having an increase in you know in in the frequency of the genes that led to those behaviors it's really mm -hmm. as simple and as bland and as cold as that right so you you can you can understand where they came from but still appreciate them as is and not thinking that that it's that you're necessarily serving an ulterior motive well let me give you one more example and so mm -hmm. there's some great work by aaron sell um and some other colleagues on anger and they've recently written this really, well, recently, my God, not so much. <laughs> they've written a really beautiful argument about the architecture of this anger system. Um, and the idea that it's this recalibration system, the idea that anger serves to basically reach into the other person's head and say, hey, that their behavior that you just did, it didn't value my welfare in the way that I expect it to have and or expect you to have. And so you should increase the way you value me under threat of, you know, a cost that I can impose upon you and your kin and everyone you know. And so, but it's basically doing that, but people are just like, I'm pissed, right? That's all people really feel. And so they don't have to know like, oh, I'm trying to manipulate this person's representation of that my value so that in mm -hmm. the future they'll value me more. Like, yeah, you can now that you know and you think about how, what is this program and how did it evolve and what is the circuitry that might, you know, that might've been selected. But our motivations are just very mm -hmm. kind of the proximate motivations that these systems build by by virtue of having had the consequences on reproductions that they did. Uh -huh. And it seems like they're very stable or convergent, right? Because e even other primates seem to have some of the basic motivations that we have, even if they can't abstract and think about them all complicated like we do. I would say they do. I would say other other social species likely have many emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one, one other thing I've wondered um, is like, imagine you, you could sort of uh, just erase hu human evolution history. Like, so, so you, you restart the clock like 10 million years ago at our, at our most common ancestor with chimps. Do you think ne necessarily we would converge towards sort of the same outcomes? Like, so, so I guess w one possibility is things are random and the other possibility is like there's, there's an especially, there's like an optimal 
mode of mode of being human, I guess, that we're gonna evolve towards. I don't know whether, all I can say is that if you rewound the clock, so now you're getting into some deep physics and quantum stuff, but if you uh -huh. rewind the <laughs> clock and you went into, you know, and you, and you push go, the idea that the very same cause and effect system is in place, injected with a distribution of probability of certain outcomes happening at any one time. I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine. I think I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna uh, totally uh, punt on that one. And yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's a really interesting question, but the idea that if, if time, so now I'm, I'm really serious, you really are asking a physics question, but mm -hmm. you know, depending on how you think about time and <laughs> time's arrow and cause and effect, I don't know, we could end up right back here. I mean, there's fun movies suggesting otherwise, but, um, but you know, I think that, so, I mean, it's a real fun debate to have with people as to what extent mm -hmm. you think causality is, you know, the ca how strong causality might be. Is it a 1.0 kind of thing or is it, you know, 0.5 chance that things will uh -huh. happen again. I, I tend to probably be up close to 0.99. <laughs> yeah, I'll, like I'll give you another example because I have I have this idea of like a set of things that that have evolved many times and that seem to be super stable and super adaptive. So like okay. you have symmetry, for example, that's one of the most basic examples where like it seems like almost every species has some level of bilateral symmetry. And then more complicated than that, if you're looking at primates or, or even even just mammals, we we all have well, like the, the more overlap there is in, in whatever system we're talking about, the more the more it seems like it's again. It's something that yeah would, would keep coming up again and again. And then only only as you get more specific do things seem to be more like maybe one-offs. I think so. I mean another way that I've posed your question to my students is, you know, if we ran into a, a group of aliens, you know, we got, went to another planet, we met a bunch of aliens, we knew a few things, would we be able to guess some of their design features and some of their adaptations? And, you know, to the extent that they have, um, you know, a, an ability to pass on, if it's some type of genetic inheritance or some type of inheritance system uh, that's conserved, I would, I mean, I, I'm guessing that this is how it would happen. You can guess that there'd be kin selection, right? The idea that people would, would have a sense of who's related and who's not. That seems to be a, um, to the extent that there are pathogens to select for inbreeding avoidance, or there were mm -hmm. possible genetic benefits for aiding other, uh, other relatives to the extent they were social. Mm -hmm. or to the extent they were pressures that required that they rely on other individuals. And so I think that, you know, given a particular setup, you might be able to infer quite a bit about aliens, the idea that the things convert. Selection pressures tend to produce similar sorts, similar selection pressures tend to produce similar uh, kinds of solutions. I mean, all the cars, if you lined up all the cars, you know, around the world, and they're not identical. I mean, but they're similar solutions. Um, mm -hmm. Some better. So they some pretty worse. much all have like the basic four wheel structure. I mean, yeah, they, there's some that are going to share a lot of designs, but others, you know, I mean, what Ferrari has like two transmissions, like what kind of design feature is that? <laughs> and so it's, you know, but the idea that you have 
very interesting uh, convergence uh, on different with different with similar kinds of of adaptive problems, you end up with similar kinds of solutions. Mm -hmm. And do you see that with moral values too, cross culturally, like they're converging towards a general theme? I don't know what you mean by moral values, and I'm not being a pain in the ass. I really, I'm genuinely wondering what you mean by moral values. Well, let let's talk about it the way you use it in your research. So I'll let you define it. <laughs> I don't know that I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, listen, the way. The word morality to me has, has become so suspicious and it, it's just, I, um, but I, I have to tell you, like, I, I am so in the minority of people. I mean, like, I think if you were to ask Joe Schmo on the street, there's a moral psychology. You want to be nice to your neighbors. You want to care for people. You don't want to cheat, steal, harm and all this stuff. And, and, and I, I agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you <Yeah>. want more? <laughs> um, well, I agree, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about your research on the subject. Yeah. Like, what okay. does it look like from a scientific standpoint? Well, the um, so it ends up that the research that I have done on morality has been quite limited. It's been mm -hmm. limited mainly to... It, with some exception, mainly to views about incest. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the idea that one, my main research has found that the same predictors that, that explain why you find your siblings sexually gross also seem to predict the strength of your moral opposition to third party sibling incest. Uh -huh. um, but more recently, I would say my views on why people would rail against incest, let's just say, actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm consulting on a case where there's a brother and sister who learned they were brother and sister um, and they're married and they're in trouble. And so they haven't had kids together, um, but they're in trouble. And so the question is, what's going on there? And why do people find it disgusting and, 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 and therefore requiring punishment and, and exclusion and, and exploitation and all these things? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons. I could feel it's personally disgusting, right? So I could actually, like, if I had five brothers and I, I could like, you know, and then I'd like vomit. And then I think that is the most disgusting possible thing in the entire world. And then I would, you know, my social value for those people would just plummet. And so the idea that they would not be high on my list of people to, you know, regard highly at all. Mm -hmm. But if I have no brothers and the idea of, you know, siblings, like what's that? I actually have no brothers I should mention. <laughs> so. What's that? And so uh, is sibling incest disgusting? Well, to me, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, you all say it is, so okay. However, mm -hmm. there is a reason why I would say it is disgusting. And this is part of the complex relationship that disgust has with morality that I alluded to a minute ago, which is that you could find something wrong by virtue of your personal, like so your personal aversions are going to be reflected in the things that you wish to forbid potentially, or they are going to inform the groups of people that you wouldn't mind going after. That's probably a better way of saying it. Uh, however, once there is a kind of agreed upon group of people that the majority wants to go after, so, 
a lot of people have opposite sex siblings. A lot of people find it disgusting. A lot of people therefore are gonna wanna, you know, lower social value, see these people as not worthy of, you know, engaging with and, and so forth and worthy of punishment. To the extent there is that, my perception is, is that, so my psychology would say, I should be saying it's disgusting so that other people are going to assume that I'm in agreement with them and they don't target me as someone who falls on the other side of the line. And uh -huh. so, uh, so disgust can be something that serves as a bit of a shield against condemnation. And you see this with individuals, for instance, who have, you know, it, you know, homo homosexuals have been targeted throughout time, throughout history today. I mean, it's, but in the US things have changed quite quickly. Mm -hmm. But before they did, individuals who, you know, so gay men would, you know, rail against homosexuality. It's disgusting. And so typically it's the people who scream the loudest. You had to be a little, you know, watch out for because that, that usually meant that well, there's interesting reasons why the people, some people scream the loudest is because they're not calibrated as to how loud they should be screaming uh, kind of mm -hmm. thing. And so, uh, but the idea that individuals are going to start railing against the norms that the majority can enforce even if they don't necessarily agree. And usually they use the language of disgust in order to align themselves with majorities, uh, moral majorities to ensure that they're not the one targeted and exploited. So, um, so, I, so in terms of my views of, of morality, um, I would say that some of it, it, there's multiple routes into thinking that something is immoral. You could again, find something quite disgusting or you could be, you could be trying to ensure that you're not the target of, of mm -hmm. a group. Um, you could also be taking the group's temperature on a particular uh, other group. Uh, so, you know, I find, I find this behavior disgusting, right? Or, you know, if I were to be down with my neighbors, I'd say, you know, the, the loud cars that go by at 2 a.m., it's just disgusting, this type of behavior. It's gotta stop. And then I'd listen and I'd say, no one's saying anything. Okay, well, I guess uh -huh. that 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 little uh, project isn't going to go anywhere. Um, but if everyone was like, "Yeah, we should do something about it," like that starts to fuel <laughs> the fire, kind of. Thing. So it's like an initial impulse comes up either due to your biology or your own peculiarities. But then once it reaches a certain threshold in the population, then it's like this more cultural evolutionary force might take over. You can call it what you want, but it's really just a coalitional psychology of let's get them. Uh -huh. So, um, and, and it can come from a bunch of different types of programs. And so I would say, you say cultural, but again, there's no culture without a mind. Um, and so I think that the, you know, it, what you're basically saying, it, it can catch fire and mm -hmm. you can now see it take, uh, you can now see it. And that's certainly something that's happened with you know the BLM movement to be sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it seems like on one hand you have sort of the the evolutionary explanation for for moral values, and it's it's basically it boils down to whether those those motivations are adaptive, right? And then on the other hand, you might have something like objective morality. That's that's more of like a religious or philosophical idea that some people argue for. But well, can can we compare those two? Where, where would the impulse come from, even if we were speaking purely evolutionarily, um, to, to have a different set of moral values? Like some people might say, killing is always wrong, even if it would save, 
even if the alternative, you know, like an extreme trolley problem, would you kill one life to save a million? And most people would probably say yes. Some people might say even that is wrong. You know, it's really hard to separate what people say, you know, from really what they would do and things like this. Mm -hmm. Optics, you know, we're learning, we've learned over the last couple of months, optics are key, right? So it's, it's what I say, not what I do. And I think that it's important. I think part of our, part of the system that is so sensitive to assessing how other people socially value us, it's constantly monitoring for social value, externally assessed social value from our peers and God through this social media world. But to the extent that we feel that we need to improve the way we're viewed, we're going to be motivated to take steps in order to, you know, to, to demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. And so the optics and, and people's, you know, this virtue signaling is something that people do often. But the question is, you know, in the moment, what do people actually, what are people actually going to do? And so I can tell you the things. So for instance, one of the, one of the uh, studies that I like very much was done by uh, Jonathan Haidt, who brought in subjects to talk about two siblings, Julie and Mark. Are you familiar with this study? No, I'm not. So subjects come into the lab. He tells them, listen, I'm going to tell you about Julie and Mark. They're brother and sister. They grew up together and they decide that they're going to, you know, try and have, they're going to have sex together. So they're of legal age and they decide it'd be mm-hmm. fun and why not? And, and they make sure that they use a condom that no one knows about it. I mean, all they, they, they protect every aspect of the scenario. And once it happens and they're going to do it again, they're never going to talk about it. No one's going to find out, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so then he says to them, is it wrong? Right. And so is right. it wrong for them to do this? And most, I think most subjects were like, yes, it's wrong. And the idea is that, well, you know, and so there's an, it, it brings up the idea of, okay, why are they saying this? And some folks might think it's because of harm. There can really, you can't really eliminate the harm that might befall these siblings uh, in some way. I actually think that people who say that are, are wrong, um, not because they say it's harm, but because they think it's harm to the siblings. I think that the subject is concerned about the harm that could befall themselves if they uh-huh. should if they should break with a, a, a just an established norm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, I mean, come on now. I mean, this is just ingrained, right? And so, I'm going to tell a researcher who's high status. It's totally fine. Oh my God, I totally do it too. Like that is a problem. And so there's a harm in getting people to go against uh, a perceived majority. And Ash showed this in, you know, some of the very basic, you know, and early psychology experiments looking at conformity. That's the one where you're comparing the length of a few lines and it's like people say the wrong answer. And (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, people are concerned. I mean, and so why are people not reporting the truth of the matter? They're concerned about the harm that could befall them in terms of the being outnumbered by, you know, the perception is they're outnumbered. Um, mm-hmm. To our hunter-gatherer brains, the idea that you're in a group and everyone else is saying one thing, do you really want to, you know, so our small kind of uh, hunter-gatherer minds operating in this 
novel modern world are still employing some of those same adaptations and making decisions based on what would have been good, you know, ancestrally, maybe not so much mm -hmm. today. So there again is this idea of social value or status within the group. And we already talked about it in the narrow sense of, of like, um, like sexual value. But then what about what about evolutionary explanations for for these sorts of social value outside of sex? Um, so I'm sorry. So other so, so give me an example. Um, well, I guess I guess it might be a similar story where you can you can present a story where you might do something that will confer social harm, but it doesn't have to do with your mating success. So how about I eat, I eat another human. So, you know, and so what about cannibalism? You know, so the idea mm -hmm. that it's a dead body, you know, it's been there for a while, but you have to decide to drag it home and just kind of put it in some stew, you know, make sure it's boiled, make sure the pathogens spice it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So there there's, I guess there's two, two explanations. One is maybe more the more the pathogen thing. I guess there's that I remember reading about like a brain disease that's some some tribe Ooh, got a cannibal yes. tribe. So but so there's true. so but there's they, that motivation against it. But then there's also the other ob more obvious one, which is like this is a human. You might have known them. Do you want to eat them? And most well, people. Well, no. This is someone. This was someone I didn't know, and this was an outgroup mm -hmm. member. Or they were found on the battlefield or something, and I'm hungry. I'm starving. Uh -huh. um, and then there might be some people who who talk about like I guess an intrinsic human nature. So it's like it doesn't matter if you don't know them. It doesn't matter if they were a criminal. It doesn't matter if you're hungry. It's like something. So I guess it it relates to people's belief of whether or not there's something sacred, and that's kind of related to moral belief as well. Absolutely. And so, but I would say put them in a starving kind of mode, and and it will very slowly and then quickly is start adjusting those weights of the things that are making them make those decisions. Uh -huh. um, and so. I think it's it, it's easy it's easy to judge outside of situations. So, for instance, you have one of the things that we talk about. So, I, I wrote a book on disgust with my former graduate student, who's a legal scholar, Carlton Patrick, mm -hmm. and the idea that heterosexual men, when they go to jail, might engage in some homosexual behavior, right? So the idea that, but when, but they would never consider themselves to be gay. It's just given the circumstances of the idea that this is the closest thing that, to a, a human that they're going to have in order to have sex with, some sex is better than no sex kind of thing. And so yeah. I would say your perceptions uh, very much are going to change. Um, just like when you are drunk coming home, opening your fridge, you know, what's considered consumable at the time, mm -hmm. obviously is going to change, you know, it's just like, okay, well, that pizza is like three days old, but I'm really hungry. And so mm -hmm. you might eat it. And so it's very, I think context uh, very much changes your perceptions and, and affects your decision making. Mm -hmm. Drugs and alcohol would be another good thing to talk about if, if you know of any evolutionary perspectives on it, because you might think these are these are harmful. Why, why are we so drawn to them? The only kinds of drugs that I think I would be uh, comfortable talking about. So you, you need to talk to Ed Hagen, who's done some work on this. He's, uh, mm -hmm. he's talked uh, quite a bit about nicotine. But the one thing I can say is that plants provide, uh, so our relationship with plants has been quite extensive over our evolutionary history and it requires a buildup of a lot of knowledge, knowledge that'll, that's pretty much been lost in modern societies. Uh, but the idea that plants 
provide when we are sick they provide one source of uh you know an adjuvant ther therapy that allows us that allowed our ancestors presumably to go out and you know seek out certain types of plants that might have been very helpful in in healing and one there's an article that was that was written i want to say it was written by franz de wall and it was in the new york times like a decade ago but it seems like yesterday or maybe it was even longer ago but it was asking about you know the medicinal use like um other primates seeking out plants in order to uh you know to 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 help them when they were ill and i find it very interesting how this gets into the discussed psychology so when you are sick and you now kind of have an internal biochemistry that's changed, that's gonna change our perception and our preferences for different kinds of tastes. I would suggest that it actually upregulates the, the taste for bitter in plants because plants have secondary compounds that are that evolved to help the plants uh, mount a defense against pathogens and, and bacteria and fungi and, and all this stuff. But the idea that we humans have learned how to actually uh, harness some of this uh, anti-pathogen power as well. And so the particular uh, article was reporting that that chimps, I believe, would go to this particular tree and they would climb up and they'd take the leaves and they'd roll it up and they just kind of put it under their lip and suck on it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't swallow it, they wouldn't do anything, and then they'd spit it out. But the idea that the, you know, so the infant that's kind of on the mom's back as she's doing this is, 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 hoovering up this information. I mean, perhaps the infant, it tastes gross right now, you know, but the idea that it's registered now is really bitter and not a very good thing to even touch right now. But the idea is that bitterness is gonna be stored and then gonna be sought out should the preference for bitterness increase if once they are sick and so forth. But the idea that seeking out the power of plants is something that we've done and all the drugs that were are you know are legal are basically plant-based right and so it's i find it very interesting that um that the prohibitions are tied to consumption which is linked to the disgust system right so don't smoke that don't ingest that don't do that it's basically don't consume that um and i find it very interesting that it's part of our disgust and consumption psychology and so whether or not the law should be in that uh, domain is, is a very interesting debate. Right, and you mentioned the stronger we feel disgust towards something, the more closely tied it is to our moral values of that thing. Yep, hang on, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna. Um, so yeah, the, the more disgust is involved, the more likely it could be reflected in kind of these moral judgments to be sure, mm -hmm. only because disgust pushes down the social value of people. So if I think that what you're eating is gross, that's going to, you know, all things equal, that's gonna lower my value of you, that, that infiltrates the social value. You had, I mean, so you had said sexual components as well are gonna lower the social value, but there's all sorts of reasons that I might have a lowered social value for you. You're a cheater, right? So I, I sense that you're not honest and that you're likely to, um, you know, to welch on your deals and stuff like this. I think that there's a lot of things that can depress a social value, disgust being just one of them. Mm -hmm. I think a great place to close would be to talk about your current research and, and future directions you'd like to take it. Um, well, I'm actually working on positive things. <laughs> so yeah. I'm working on, uh, so I have a project on gratitude. Uh, so the idea that gratitude is, is a critical emotion for jumpstarting cooperative relationships. 
So beyond kin, so if there's motivations to be nice to your kin by virtue of the cues to kinship that are going to direct you to trade off your welfare for, for them according to how related they are, the question is, is what's the system that gets you motivated uh, up and running to, to cooperate with other folks? And I think gratitude plays a big role in that. So the idea that another person does something for me, values me for some reason, doesn't even matter. The idea that my gratitude towards them could signal to them, hey, I really found that act that you did to be of benefit um, and kind of positively reinforce them doing it again with the promise of you know, cooperation and, and benefits for me to follow in the future. So I think gratitude is a critical emotion that, that really kind of jumpstarts friendships. Mm -hmm. And is gratitude, is it, is it like a very complex emotion unique to humans or, or do you know of any animal research showing certain gratitude, maybe even if it's more simple in forms of like tit for tat? I would say gratitude is, um, so gratitude is similar to anger in the sense that if you, if you envision anger as an emotion that's triggered by an assessment that you did not value me as highly as I expect you to, uh, and I have the leverage to enforce my will. Uh, gratitude is, hey, you, you valued me, you know, as I expected or greater. And so this is, you know, this is something to take advantage of as an opportunity for future benefits down the, down the road. Mm -hmm. And so I would suspect that uh, in, 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 in social species that assess the value of their conspecifics, that gratitude is part of their repertoire. Um, there was, a, so I, I can give you, it, it's totally secondhand, but I do remember hearing a talk by, um, you know, I, I forgot her name, but she was a Franz de Waal postdoc, I think. But basically you have where chimps have to get watermelon or something, but you need two people to pull a lever in order to get the watermelon through. Levers are far apart. So one will wait mm -hmm. until another one shows up and they'll signal and they'll pull it and then they can come and get the, and share the watermelon or something like this. But the video that I had seen was when they got the watermelon, they came over and did something like they, they touched hands. And I, I almost fell out of my chair. I'm like, oh my God, the evolution of the high five. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was like, thinking too. And so I was just like, holy smokes, the idea that, and so you could think of that. So it is, I think, tied to gratitude in the sense of, you know, hey, appreciate you, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, I think that it is a sense of, because you can imagine if the other chimp just kind of walked to the lever, looked at the lever, and you know, just was like I'm not doing that, and walked away. You know, and walked toward the other chimp. You know, it wouldn't be a high five; it would be a punch in the nose, kind of an anger kind of thing. Like you know, you're not helping mm -hmm. out. You're not valuing me enough to help out, help me out, get this resource. And I think the other way is the gratitude of, hey, you know, you 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 valued this, you know, joint venture, and so I'm I'm reinforcing that. And so that might be a gesture that's also part of the system that's, you know, then you'd find that they cooperate more down the future, down the line. It's, uh, but it's an interesting prospect that gratitude is present in, in many of our, our cousins. Yeah. Dr. Lieberman, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yep.